0: I'm Andy Brewer with Northwest AHEC, and I am thrilled to introduce my guest today on Healthcare Insights, and this is John C. Moscop, Professor of General Internal Medicine at Wake Forest School of Medicine. He is uh, the Chair of Clinical Ethics Committee at Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center and a core faculty member in the Wake Forest University Bioethics Graduate Program. And he's published numerous articles, including a book called Ethics in Healthcare, An Introduction. It was published in 2006 by Cambridge University Press. And I have to admit, I just started in on the book, so I didn't get very far. I am really excited about today because I've been thinking about the topics that, that you're an expert in. And um, uh, I think everyone should spend some time with And as a thought exercise. Um, really dig deep into these things. So I'm going to jump right in and say no one gets out alive. Right. And having said that, um, why are we in our culture so scared of death and dying?
1: Well, maybe not everyone is scared of death and dying, but uh, for lots of folks, it's the end of of everything for them. It's, uh, you know, sort of their total annihilation. And that's not a a happy thing that 's not everyone 's view, of course. some folks believe that uh, an afterlife is coming after this life, and uh, they 're hopeful about that. Other folks may say well i 'm satisfied with a finite life, and I think I can live my life to the fullest and I think when i 've had that complete life it 's time for it to end and that 's that 's okay that 's not a bad thing so people 's the The point is that people 's attitudes toward death and toward medical care as they approach the end of life are pretty different. And, you know, people have different uh, preferences. Uh, so what that means, of course, is that um, we don't always agree. Um, and so families might not agree amongst themselves. Um, patients and families may not agree with healthcare care providers who are providing care for them as they approach the end of life. Um, and we struggle to resolve those disagreements.
0: I've heard a lot of advanced care planning topics that over the years and it seems to be more and more a topic of interest and mm-hmm. and at least promoted. Um yeah. w- what's the reluctance people have to to take care of that?
1: Well, I think some folks think, "Oh, this is a morbid subject." I you know, I really don't want to think about it or they may feel reluctant because they may think, "Well, you know, I'd like to talk with my parents or my grandparents about this, but um, they may not want to and they may think it's inappropriate for me to raise the issue. Um, So one of the things we try to do is to encourage people that this is a a perfectly reasonable topic to talk about. Um, It's an important topic. Um, It's a topic that can be viewed as your gift to your loved ones to make them aware of what your preferences and your wishes would be for care as you're approaching the end of your life. So that's one of the ways we try to encourage people to have those conversations.
0: Explain just briefly advanced care planning and some of the things that you mentioned it just now,
1: some of the things, Mm -hmm. but just give us sort of the ABCs real quick. Sure. So um, advanced care planning is a process in which people think about their current state of health and their preferences for medical care as they approach the end of their lives. Of course, for some people, this is going to be many, many years in the future. For other people who have a progressive or a terminal illness, it might be in the relatively near future. So to help them think about that, it's important for them to talk with their health care provider about what kinds of medical treatment are likely to be necessary and what kinds of problems might arise in their care near the end of their lives. It's also important for them to talk with their loved ones and sort of share the thinking about that. And those things should help people to eventually come to some decisions about what kind of care they would want to have as they approach the end of life. And then the next step in this process, this planning process, is for them to um, communicate that plan. Um, And the primary way that most folks do that are through documents called advanced directives. So this is a way that they can say, here is the way I'd like to handle these decisions, and I want you to know that, and I want you to honor the approach that I would like to take. Now, it's important for folks to realize that there are two major types of advanced directives that people can prepare for themselves. One is called a healthcare power of attorney. And the major f- function of that document is for a person to designate another person as their decision maker for treatment decisions when they have lost the ability to make those decisions for themselves. That person um, in our documents is called their health care agent. So that's one kind. The other kind is called a living will, and the living will expresses in general terms some decisions or some preferences a person would have regarding the kind of treatment they would want in particular medical conditions. And there's, in North Carolina, the the living will that is recognized by our laws is a document that's fairly narrow in scope. What it says is, what it allows people to say is, I do not want to use life-sustaining treatments if I'm in one or all of three medical conditions, Either I have a terminal illness, an illness that can't be cured and that will cause my death within a relatively short period of time, or I'm irreversibly unconscious. I've lost consciousness. I'm not going to regain it. Or I have advanced dementia or other inability to, um, to think. Um, so those are. that's pretty much the, the gist of what the North Carolina living will allows people to tell others.
0: I'm thinking when, as you talk, I thought about differences in socioeconomic status and how that plays out for your ability to take care of those legal matters. Do you see
1: that play out? Sure. Um, Different people will have different ways to do this planning and to complete these directives. So some people do it as part of estate planning with their lawyer, and that's perfectly fine. And that's, uh, you know, many lawyers who do estate planning offer uh, those living wills and healthcare powers of attorney as part of their services. But you don't have to have a lawyer to do this. And lots of other folks um, choose to do it on their own, really. Or, well, here's what we do here at Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center. For our patients who are in the hospital, we ask them, first of all, if they have an advance directive. And if they don't, we ask them if they would actually like more information or would like some help in preparing an advance directive. If they say yes, we can give them information. We have very concise information about that. And if they say, well, now I'd really like to do this. I'd like to prepare one of these directives. We have people who are specially trained to facilitate that process and to help people complete those directives in the uh, in the right way. Here at Wake Forest Baptist, it is our chaplain residents who have done that training and who offer that service. And so we will put in a consultation request to one of those folks who will come and visit the patient. And if the patient is able to do this, you have to have decision-making capacity in order to complete an advanced directive. Then that uh, chaplain resident can help the person sort of work through it and complete it. That sounds like
0: kind of (laughs) just-in-time approach, (laughs) Um, what about outreach? (laughs) where Like legal aid goes out and helps people with uh, low-cost ways of taking care of kinds of things. Is there any outreach you do to get people to think about that before they get into a situation where they have to think about it?
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. That is just-in-time. It is not the best time to do that because usually when people are in the hospital, they're quite sick. They have other things on their mind and they may not be in the best frame of mind to do this planning and to do these documents. So it would be much better if people do it maybe in an outpatient setting or uh, in, in, in any other setting where they, they have more time. Um, it's maybe easier to focus on those questions. We do not have the designated people to do this in all of our outpatient clinics some of our outpatient clinics do and um, there are also other ways that people can get basic information about how to do this the local hospice and palliative care center offers periodic public advanced care planning information sessions that people that are that are open to the public people can come people can understand how to complete these documents and complete them if they want. So there's another place that people can go if they would like help doing this. Now, some of us who are proponents of this and who really think it's important sometimes go and talk to different groups of folks and help them to sort of get the basic information and and understand how to do this. So in a few weeks, I'll be doing a presentation like that, for example, at one of our uh, retirement communities and maybe help those folks who are interested to Decide, yeah, this is something I want to do, and now I know how to do it, and I'm I'm going to do it.
0: Great. Well, it, it sounds like going out and, and spreading the word about advanced care planning seems to be a proactive approach mm-hmm. towards preventing ethical things it, that come up.
1: Absolutely. Um, that's, that's what it's all about. It's sort of, I think it's right to call it preventive ethics. The idea is, look, if, if a person thinks about this ahead of time, if they make some decisions about their preferences ahead of time— if they write those down or communicate them, and by the way, I think the most important thing, especially if you've appointed a healthcare agent in, you, through one of these healthcare power of attorney documents, is to have a conversation with that person so you can tell them, you know, what you've decided, what your preferences are, what your goals would be as you approach the end of life, because people will make different choices about that, and we can't assume that you're agent will know unless you talk with them. Mm-hmm. So that in some ways is the very most important thing for most people. Anyway, uh, you know, we want to, you know, we want to encourage that to happen. I think there's you're still faced,
0: or we are as a society still faced with a huge challenge in setting the, the expectations for the end of life. Meaning mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, when they start seeing the Grim Reaper approaching, they all of a sudden grasp out for a better quality of life than may have they have had yeah. while they were semi-healthy.
1: Sure. Yeah. And, and now I'm recalling that you're asking about different socioeconomic groups and different cultural groups. And those groups um, may have different kinds of access or different kinds of attitudes toward this kind of, of a planning process. So uh, just as one example... We wanted to encourage uh, information sharing with our Spanish-speaking residents about that. And so we actually created a series of of videos, brief videos, in Spanish uh, that talked about advanced care planning and advanced directives and tried to sort of demystify the topic for Latino folks. And um, we've had some success in getting those disseminated to uh, churches and so on that have large populations of Spanish-speaking folks. There's an there's another issue, and that is um, some folks may view this as a way to limit the care that they would be entitled to or that they would get as they approach the end of life. And we want to dispel that because we don't believe that that is true. What our goal is is to help people get the type of medical care that they that they want, not to force any kind of care on them. So it's perfectly reasonable for someone to say, for example, you know, when I'm approaching the end of life, I still want to live as long as I can. So I want whatever life-sustaining treatments might be available that could prolong my life. Some folks will choose that. Other folks will say, as I approach the end of my life, I don't want to go through the, the difficult Treatment process of some of these very aggressive treatments and all the side effects and so on. I want the focus to be on my quality of life, and I want to have only those treatments that will really keep me alert or keep me pain free, and um, that will be my focus, not on uh, trying to extend my life as long as I can. So we want to be able to honor both types of decisions. And as you know, uh, and as I think most folks know, Um, We've got lots of options for life-sustaining treatment. Some of it's really aggressive. We also have important options for care that improves the quality of life, both palliative care, both broadly, and for folks who are nearing the end of life, hospice care. Those types of care focus more on uh, maintaining and improving a good quality of life as one approaches the end of one's life.
0: Something that I've noticed that... A lot of people all of a sudden want a better quality of life when they're faced with that. And and where I'm going with that is our system, we call it a health system, but it's really a sick care system. And we don't, we're starting to get better at prescribing things like meditation and yoga and acupuncture for pain, and mm-hmm. for instance. Mm-hmm. But uh, it seems like a lot of people don't treat themselves well and have a low quality of life. And then as they're approached and faced with mortality, then all of a sudden i want to, I want to live and I want to do these things and you know what what would be just your your thoughts on that that concept of of sick care versus wellness
1: so several issues there uh one of course is that um, you're absolutely right that throughout the course of our life there are all kinds of things we can do to improve our health status or to make it worse and you know what we all know what some of those things are smoking will will harm our health eating an unhealthy diet will harm our health. For some folks, the ability to have access to good healthy food um, has negative consequences for their health. So there are lots of things that we can do and there are lots of things that we should be encouraging people to do to uh, maintain and improve their health. Things like healthy diet, exercise, maybe meditation. Now, as patients approach the end of their life, whether they've led a healthy lifestyle or not, there are things that we can offer that can help them. And, you know, our palliative care teams um, have a whole toolbox of different uh, uh, things that, uh, that they can offer. Some of them are medications to control pain. Some of them are medications and treatments that can control other bothersome symptoms like, you know, shortness of breath or something like that. Some of them are treatments that can help them with uh, positive thoughts, and, and uh, some of them are spiritual and helping them to connect with uh, their own spiritual tradition and the resources that it has to offer. So this is a very holistic and multidisciplinary approach that uh, our palliative care uh, uh, physicians and, and other practitioners can offer.
0: Yeah, I'm wondering if we approached the topic of mortality at a younger age, that that would help people want to add life to their years while they can and make those proper choices or those better choices uh, than waiting and, and falling
1: victim to all the gluttony and bad choices that are available to us. Yeah. You know, Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. (laughs) And part of an examined life is to recognize that uh, our lifespan is finite. Uh, And so uh, we would presumably want to make the best use of the time that we have and uh, make good choices. And there are all kinds of good choices that we can make. You know, we can choose to dedicate our lives to the service of others. We can choose to dedicate our life to things that give us joy. And, uh, you know, those are presumably a We'd want to do some of both of those things. At least most of us, you know, we need to think about well, what, what are the right choices? What are my, my goals? What are my responsibilities to my family, uh, to my, my job, and so on? And and uh, try and fulfill those responsibilities. So there, there are lots of ways to live that examined life.
0: So tell me uh, about the clinical ethics programs at Wake Forest Baptist.
1: We have a variety of uh, ethics activities at the Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center that are organized and provided under the auspices of our Clinical Ethics Committee. So, this is a, an active committee uh, in the uh, medical center with multidisciplinary members physicians, nurses, uh, chaplains, social workers, um, and other healthcare professionals. And we provide several, I think, valuable services for our staff and for our patients at the medical center. They really fall into into three areas. Uh, One is an education service. So we provide a continuing education series for our uh, staff. And uh, that is provided in conjunction with Northwest AHEC. It's called Exploring Ethics. And about every month, um, we'll offer a a presentation on a clinical ethics topic. So, for example, uh, one of the recent ones we had was uh, about whether it is a good decision, a morally uh, supportable decision, to provide tube feeding for patients who are suffering from uh, severe dementia. That is something that is typically done, but the medical evidence suggests that it may not be helpful. It may not actually improve their quality of life or extend their life. So we need to think hard about whether that's an appropriate treatment or not. That's just one example of many, many, um, because this program has been going on for about eight years now. So that's one thing. Another thing that we do is to provide something called clinical ethics consultation. And what that means is that if Anyone who's involved in the care of a patient has a question about, well, what's the right thing to do? Or what's the appropriate thing to do? Or is it permissible to do this in the care of this patient? They can ask for help. And our group of consultants will respond and will help that person and that medical team and that patient and that family think about what makes sense um, from a you know, practical and a moral point of view with regard to the goals of care for that patient and the appropriate treatments for that patient. We don't dictate an answer, but we try and help facilitate thinking about the question, and we try and help the primary interested parties uh, come to agreement about a course of action that is um, a reasonable course of action for that patient. So, that's another thing that we do, and we do, on average, about 50 of those consultations um, every year. So, Not surprisingly, you know, there are a number of situations where either there's conflict or there's uncertainty because it's an unusual situation and we're not sure what to do. And so then people can ask for help. So that's the second thing. The third thing we do is to help develop and review hospital policies that have to do with ethics questions. One of them, in fact, is about treatment decisions near the end of life, what we've just been talking about. Another one is our policy with regard to do-not-resuscitate orders. Um, when is it appropriate to do that, and what is, the, what is the procedure that we should use in order to decide whether a patient should have a do-not-resuscitate order? And there are a number of others uh, as well, it's about things like confidentiality, about informed consent that um, we might have some input in for the hospital.
0: That's great. I, I want, a couple of things I wanted to point out there. Uh, one is the interprofessional teams, mm-hmm. which I think is super important, mm-hmm. not only for the nuances of, that some of these cases can present, mm-hmm. but also the diversity of ideas that come from those multidisciplinary teams. And, it, and for the listeners, I encourage you to read uh His book, because it does ha it starts out each chapter with a case and and you will see very clearly the nuances that are involved in some of these moral and ethical decisions that mm-hmm. that you make
1: yeah, these different professionals, different backgrounds, different training, bring different kinds of expertise and they're all important, so we include for example our hospital attorney. One of our hospital attorneys is a member because we need to know the sort of what the law says about particular issues that we're struggling with um, as well. It's really important for us to know from our social workers, what are the alternatives, for example, for transfer or for disposition of a patient who is ready to leave the hospital. So our chaplains, of course, can help us with questions about faith, and they can help us with regard to their skills in personal counseling of patients who are struggling with a tragic situation. So we rely heavily and we value the, 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 the contributions that those folks make.
0: Great. So tell me about the uh, bioethics education here at the Wake uh, Forest School of Medicine.
1: Sure. Um, so we uh, teach a required course for our undergraduate medical students uh, in the basics of the moral and social Dimensions of the treatment, the the healthcare that they will provide. The course is called Medicine and Patients in Society. The the acronym is MAPS, which is an easy acronym to re, to uh, remember. So this is a this is a robust course. It's I believe in total, twenty nine hour and a half sessions over the first eighteen months of their medical school, and it it's it's a survey course that covers all of the really basic issues in bioethics and social medicine, things like privacy and confidentiality, informed consent, uh, truthfulness, decisions in care for patients near the end of life as we've been talking about. Um, and also things like the, the relationship between culture and healthcare care, between race and healthcare care, income and healthcare care, um, how family dynamics affect uh, healthcare decisions. So those are some of the social medicine topics that we also um, include in that course.
0: Have you noticed, I mean, you've been teaching for a while, have you noticed uh, a difference in today's medical student versus 10, 20 years ago? I mean, as far as just their attitudes and approach to
1: these issues? Sure. There are definite differences, of course, because the issues have changed. They've changed tremendously in the time that I've been teaching this. I started quite a long time ago now. So, you know, lots of changes in what's possible um, uh, and lots of changes in attitudes that people bring to these issues. You know, whereas 45 years ago or so, there was a real question about whether it was even acceptable for patients to refuse treatments that would prolong their lives. Now, that's pretty much accepted by everyone as something that patients ought to have the right to do. Of course, our medical students have also changed in their their preferred approach to learning. Um, and, you know, there's a lot. And our, our courses have changed as a result of that. There's a lot fewer lectures and a lot more sort of small group active participant learning. And there's more our students rely are, and are much more conversant with um Uh, computer-based learning and, you know, the use of social media and so on. So we try to uh, include some of those things in the teaching that we do for them. So tell me a little bit about the graduate program. Yeah. So in addition to our teaching for undergraduate medical students, and we also do some teaching with our medical residents, you know, who are in that stage, that graduate stage of their learning, Wake Forest University also has a graduate program in bioethics. So students can enroll as graduate students and earn a master's degree uh, in bioethics. And I am one of the folks who's a core faculty member in that program. Folks in that program get a a much more in-depth training in this field of bioethics, including clinical ethics, the ethics of care for patients who are ill, and also um, medical research ethics. So what is the appropriate way for us to engage in research using human subjects? So, we have courses in both of those graduate seminars in those areas, also in health policy areas. And uh, it's a multidisciplinary faculty that includes folks with training in philosophy and law and communication and theology uh, who teach the courses. That's been ongoing now for, I think, nine years.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I bet in that time a lot's changed as well because of the speed of innovation in technology and. Sure. The rise of AI and and the yeah. genome and genomics and, and all that stuff. So. Yeah,
1: yeah. There are new uh, topics and new debates that are emerging. But the old ones, you know, they, they don't go away either. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's been a debate ongoing for mm, 30 years or so about whether we ought to allow physicians to aid the death of their patients in various ways. It used to be called physician-assisted suicide. Now it's the preferred term is physician aid in dying. And um, that debate has evolved. And as you may know, we now have eight states in the District of Columbia who, in which that is a legal option for patients and willing physicians. But there's still lots of uh, debate. There's still lots of, of critics of, of that that particular practice.
0: If someone wants to go, let them go however they want.
1: (laughs) And that is, that approach is, is, you know, is slowly gaining acceptance in a number of states and other countries as, as well. So it seems to be, it's not a rapid trend, but there seems to be a trend toward acceptance of these alternative ways to uh, deal with uh, one's approaching death. Do you have any
0: personal stories that you could share about Someone, a student or a fellow colleague that was really fixed in a position until they were, you know, as far as a theoretical, moral, ethical question, until they were actually faced with it themselves and and (laughs) seeing how they dealt with it.
1: Well, I don't have a specific instance that comes to mind, but I, I can tell you that our students will sometimes tell us, you know, when we were taking your course as students who were not yet into our clinical education, It didn't really hit home to us about how important these issues are. But now that we're actually involved in teams that are caring for patients, we recognize that these issues come up on a regular basis every day, in effect. And we need to be prepared to to respond to them. We need to deal with questions that arise about protecting a patient's confidentiality or deciding who should be the appropriate decision maker for a person who can't make his or her own decisions. These are important choices. So I I certainly do hear that. I've had a few medical students over the course of my uh, time in teaching who got so interested and so committed to these issues that they decided they would go and do a uh, formal training in bioethics. Um, and uh, that's, that's not a Common thing, but it, but there are folks who uh, you know decide that this is really important and they really want to commit themselves to it. So, for example, there are a number of folks who graduated from our bioethics master's program who then uh, have uh, gone on to get medical degrees, and so they now have you know have both kinds of training. And some have done it the other way; they've gotten their medical degrees first, and then they come back and say, "But I really want to study more of of these ethics issues," and so I'll. Um I'll do it through this program.
0: Yeah, I think the more questions like this we answer, the more we get with the sure. innovations in mm-hmm. technology and healthcare mm-hmm. and personalized and precision medicine and all lots, that stuff. So lots of
1: questions there. Yeah. So
0: I mean a treatment which we used to consider for a population is now you know, now we're getting down to treatments for individual people. Yeah. So I, I, yeah. think, I think that's going to yeah. be more and more an issue that comes to life. Yeah.
1: This, these precision medicine treatments are exciting and they look like they're offering really important benefits for, for some patients. Um, but the the challenging thing is they're often very, very expensive and we've got to figure out how we can provide them and how we can afford that and, and still provide the full range of health care for all the folks that, that we're covering through private or through public health insurance systems, so those are really difficult questions too.
0: Does anything concern you about the willingness for people to share their genetic makeup with these companies who then use it for you know potentially all kinds of things that could bore, you know bump up against the the lines of ethical and non-ethical? Well, there are, once again,
1: there are sort of benefits and risks to this, right? Um, and uh, yeah, I think you're thinking about these sort of biobanks where people can agree to uh, allow for their, their data, maybe their tissue samples to be stored and used in future you know, biomedical research. Um, people are asked you know, if they're willing to do that if they choose to, these could be really important, you know, and make research easier to accomplish and, you know, maybe uh, speed the kinds of uh, medical breakthroughs that are really important. So that's the that's the positive part of it. Um, but there are also risks, um, and those risks can be addressed, but there's a risk to breach of, uh, of confidentiality if somehow some of this personal information were to get to people who don't have any, any right to it. Um, now, we can protect against that, you know, by building firewalls and building confidentiality protections, which will pr- effectively protect that data from unauthorized uh, access. So um, it, is, it should be a, a choice, I think. It should be uh, something that people are asked whether they wanted to uh, participate in or not. And as with most other kinds of biomedical research, um, some folks will say yes, I want to make this contribution. Other folks will say no. It's the, I'm not, I'm not prepared to do that.
0: I was more thinking about like 23 and Me and oh and these... the,
1: oh okay, that's another story. Yeah, well, <laughs> there's a different set of of motivations and risks there. I mean, you know, people are curious about well, what are my health risks? What is my ancestry? Can you tell me about you know things about my ancestors that I haven't been able to figure out? And that's one reason why they choose to you know send their samples and get the feedback from these companies. Some claim that uh, you know the 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 information they get back may not be as reliable as it should be or as it could be. I'm not in a position to to judge about uh, about that. There may be ways that these companies then might give others access to that information. They may ask people about that. They may get consent, but I wonder how many people really uh, understand that and really uh, are making a thoughtful choice about whether that's something they they want or not. But I confess that I've been tempted to to, to do that, but I've not yet... I've not yet... uh, (laughs) Done it. <laughs>
0: well, I, I see them as like Facebook. People willingly submit their content, so to speak, not knowing how it's going to be used. Yeah. And, I, and I think that healthcare providers are, in general, more concerned with you know HIPAA than the patients themselves. Because if you go even on Instagram and you look at location, Wake Forest Baptist Health, you'll see people in their rooms taking pictures of their afflictions. <laughs> so yeah. it, it's like, okay, yeah, we're concerned way more about privacy than, than the yeah. patients seem to be. And we seem to have become a culture that has basically zero expectations of privacy.
1: Yeah, that's, you know, that does appear to be a, a shift in our cultural values. Um I think people may be not as concerned about privacy and confidentiality as as they should be, but um, you know that's a choice that uh, that people will make. I think. Well, here's an example uh, that uh, is something we actually talk about in our uh, our course for medical students. We remind them that they should be very careful about the way that they use social media because. You know they'll be looked at in often as representatives of their profession or representatives of uh, of our school, and if they are portraying themselves in an unfavorable light on Facebook or whatever um that reflects badly on them and it also reflects badly on the organization so you know those are important questions for our for our students and for our for our staff as well and I, you know we we want to make them think carefully about about that.
0: Yeah, I I think people aren't concerned about privacy until they are.
1: (laughs) (laughs) They need to be uh, sort of prospectively, right?
0: You've long been a member of the Ethics Committee of the American College of Emergency Physicians. So tell me how that differs from some of your other roles that you play.
1: It's been a very uh, fruitful opportunity for me to be a member of that organization. So the American College of Emergency Physicians is the primary Medical Professional Society for Physicians Who Practice Emergency Medicine. And uh, that that organization, its mission is to represent the interests of its members, but also to give its members guidance about a whole bunch of uh, professional issues. So about, you know, practice guidelines, for example, but also about the moral responsibilities that they have. Uh, what this committee does is to identify moral issues that are of particular interest in emergency medicine and offer guidance on those in in several ways. Um, we are asked to uh, draft policies for the college on on a variety of ethical issues, uh, for example, just to take one at random on whether emergency physicians have a responsibility to disclose when a medical error is made in the care of a patient in the emergency department. So we wrote a policy on that. Those policies then are approved by the board of directors of the college, and then they become an official policy of the college, and college members are expected to abide by the policies. Some years ago, we actually wrote a A set of principles of ethics for emergency physicians. We decided that we weren't entirely satisfied with the principles of ethics for physicians that the AMA had written, but that we wanted to have one that was more specific to the the situation that emergency physicians are in. So we did that, and that became an official policy of the the college um, and remains so. The other thing that we do is we write articles that analyze different ethical issues in Emergency medicine, and we seek to have those papers published as scholarly papers in medical journals and very often in emergency medicine journals so for example, I was a member of a group that published just in the last few months a paper about the moral problems of severe crowding in emergency departments um, that's a that 's an endemic problem in emergency departments there are just too many patients that have you know, presented to the department with medical treatment needs, then the department can easily handle that because of the, you know, the staff that's available, the physicians are available. So what happens then? Um, And there are tough decisions that have to happen and there are compromises that are sometimes made because you just don't have the space to put all the people who need care. So you end up putting them You know, in hallways and and in waiting areas, and uh, those are not the best places to provide medical care. But what can you do if if the folks are there and they need the care, and you can't turn them away? So, so those are some of the issues that we talk about. And of course, we talk about what we can do in order to limit these crowded conditions or prevent these crowded conditions. And there are things we can do, but. They're not easy.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, you said the ethics committee gets about fifty cases a year from from patient cases. I, yeah. I can imagine an uh, ED physician making fifty ethical decisions uh, over a shift. Yeah, as yeah. they triage people and they deal with pain, yeah. uh, you know, uh, pill seekers and and all the things that that come in through the the doors
1: of the emergency room. Yeah, yeah. So we want to help them by preparing them, helping them to think about those issues before, you know, they're confronted with a situation where they have to make a decision. Do I give this patient a prescription for a pain medication that they're asking for? Or do I say, no, it's not appropriate in, in your situation? Hopefully, if they've thought about that, if they've read about, you know, how to assess the, the, these requests, they'll, they'll make a better decision.
0: Yeah, I can imagine those would be in compounding, in like mass casualties and and uh, you know natural disaster situations. Oh, sure. And things like that. Those
1: present difficult questions of their own, like like the triage questions: who should get priority for treatment when you've got lots of folks who need treatment in your transport facilities or your beds in the. Uh, Emergency department are are full.
0: Yeah, that that brings a, a chilling memory to mind. Is reading the first chapter of Cold Mountain mm. uh, mm-hmm. th- th- when they're talking about triaging the the war wounded mm-hmm. and, and dying. Uh, yeah, just yeah. encourage anybody to just read that first chapter <laughs> and to see what book. I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what do you see as some uh, challenges and and or trends that are going on? I mean, we talked a little bit about innovation and technology mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the healthcare in general, but what about in, in, as far as things that current practicing health professionals of, of all disciplines need to be thinking about as as we, we move towards, you know, more value-based care and Mm -hmm. changes Mm -hmm. in the healthcare system and so on.
1: Yeah. Well, we just talked about one of them and that is how do we respond to the opioid epidemic and how do we make good choices and help people make good choices about their treatment needs. Um, And, you know, this is a an epidemic that was partially caused by our healthcare system, because we didn't realize that very generous prescribing of these opioid pain medications would would cause addiction and would cause these overdoses and and these tragic outcomes that we're we're now having to deal with. So now that we have a better handle on this, how can we? prevent the misuse and the overuse of opioids while still providing effective treatment for those folks who still have these chronic pain conditions or these acute pain conditions and really do need pain relief for serious pain. So that's certainly an ongoing um, debate. The other one you mentioned, if we think about it on the policy level, is a question about whether we are going to continue to expand access to health insurance for folks uh, in our our nation or whether we're going to sort of back off on that. And as you know, that's been a political debate in our country for for a decade. You know, the Affordable Care Act was enacted in 2010. Here we are in 2019. And, uh, you know, it's been around for a long time, but its future is still uncertain. And, Do we want to continue that? Do we want to expand it and thereby help people get easier access to health care, those who are uninsured? Or do we want to sort of say, no, we're going to go a different way um, and we're going to view health care and access to health care in a different way? And that's that's one way, one general way of of describing that debate. That has real consequences for, for lots of folks. And as you know, in North Carolina, one of the ways that's playing out is in the debate about whether North Carolina ought to expand its Medicaid eligibility. That's a, de- that's a decision that's been left up to the states. I think about 35 states have decided to do that. North Carolina is one of the states has, that has decided not to do that. And so, you know, there's very active debate in our legislature and our government about whether that's something we ought to do now or, or not
0: yeah I, I think that's a huge issue, and i there's the notion of healthcare care as a right, which seems to be on face pretty good idea that we should all have at least access to uh, immediate needs care. But I think if we go down that road, I think rights come with responsibilities, and I think if we if we say healthcare care is a right, then I think we should also add on to what are your as a as a member of society's responsibilities to ensure that you need as little of this as possible?
1: Yeah, that's, uh, that's a big part of the debate. Um, if we just basically increase access, will that be encouraging people not to take responsibility for their own health? Or are we really talking about people who are not able to make these decisions, like children, for example? They can't. You know, take responsibility uh, for their health because they just don't have that capacity at a young age. So, how do we how do we address the needs that they have for healthcare?
0: Back to the opioid thing. You know, we we have this. Well, we started out saying pain is the what fifth symptom or fifth what, vital sign. Fifth vital sign. Yeah. yes, vital yeah. sign. And while everyone who's in pain will say it's a ten it seems. And it, and I had a conversation recently where sometimes pain is necessary, you know, and, and there's this attitude, I guess, toughen up some, you know, we've become this nation where we don't want to be uncomfortable for any reason. We want to be safe. We want to be comfortable. You know, we're not getting eaten by animals at night anymore. So we don't have to worry about that. You know, at least for the last two, three hundred years, we haven't worried about you know, safety as we try to sleep. So those stressors have gone. So mm-hmm. we've gotten to this point where every little thing that makes us uncomfortable, we need a solution to right away instead of just finding some resilience to it. And it, I've I've read some things about how pain kind of can be
1: important in healing as well. You get any thoughts about that? Pain is, uh, you know, a sign of something going on in the body, and uh, that might be important in order to diagnose whatever the problem is. But we can't always identify a cause or a cause that, is, that somehow can be eradicated. So, yeah, part of the question is, do we have a responsibility to try to limit or eliminate pain or, or minimize it? How important is that responsibility how much should we rely on people's reports of their pain, because we have no external way to determine you know what a person is feeling it's really a subjective symptom i mean obviously we can identify certain <coughs> things that cause pain if you've broken your leg, then you're going to have pain right, mm-hmm. or if you have some sort of other clear um medical condition then those often cause pain, but there are other conditions where that's not as clear where people are feeling pain, whether it's Mm. like chronic back pain or fibromyalgia or some of these other conditions that are harder to identify and harder to treat. So how do we, how do we help people? And and, uh, while at the same time, preventing Recreational use of these drugs or diversion of these drugs because, you know, that's clearly a, a sort of detrimental.
0: Yeah. Uh, you know, riding the shuttle here, I heard this quote, which I think is apropos to what we're talking about is the solution to the problem of malvolence and tragedy is the willingness to face them. And I thought that, and that's a Buddha quote, I think. Oh, okay. And, uh, I thought that uh, I think a lot of people need to think about that for a little bit and, yeah. and, and maybe uh, instead of. Seeking safety and comfort all the time is to face what it is that's making you feel unsafe
1: and, and mm. uncomfortable. What thought that occurred to me when you read the quotation is, well, that's what healthcare providers are all about, to, to confront people who are suffering and people who are in pain and people who are injured and to really make a difference and to help them.
0: Yeah, I uh, thought it was apropos yeah. to the death and dying, too, where, you know, a lot sure. of us are afraid of that. But it, we need to take a moment and use that thought exercise to figure out why it is. What yeah. is it that sure. it so scares us? And maybe thinking about that and thinking about dying will make us live our life more meaningful and more fuller and more giving. To, yeah, you know. I think it can. It can, can
1: make you ask yourself the question, well, what's important? What can I do that will, will really make a difference, will really be worthwhile? Yeah
0: we talked a lot about the end of life. Yeah. Um, what about the beginning? I know we have a huge debate. I, morally, I'm opposed to abortion, but mm. ethically, I, I don't know if there's a difference, but ethically, I think that I, I'm all for letting a woman control what happens to her body. So yeah. I don't know if that that's, there seems to be a conflict with that. I never would have said I was opposed to abortion until I was faced with the choice. Mm. And mm. I couldn't make, the the choice to ab- abort mm-hmm. so I, now mm-hmm. i have four kids <laughs> ah, i see <laughs> but but i was faced with it yeah. and and before yeah. then i just thought i was as progressive as anybody oh yeah, yeah that's an easy choice you yeah. know if you if, yeah you know, but but when faced with it you know i i stood firmly on one side of it yeah. so you know is is you use the words eth- ethics and moral
1: morality in mm-hmm. your book mm-hmm. interchangeably yeah. is, is that
0: a am i taking two sides at once with that statement?
1: Well, I think that the position you described is a consistent position. I think that it's perfectly uh, reasonable for someone to say, this is not something that I would ever do or that I would ever want my family to do, and we would not choose it. But I, I believe that it is a choice that other people do make, and I believe that they ought to have the freedom to make that choice, even though I don't think it's the best choice. So that's a consistent position, I think. But for some folks, that's not the most comfortable or the most defensible position because they would say, look, I view abortion as the termination of a human life. And, and it is, and in, in clearly because the, f- the fetus is a human life. The question is, what status should it have? But if you believe that it has full status as a moral being, then the decision to end that life is uh, is a is a kind of homicide. And it's, if, if you take that point of view, then you can easily see why, you know, I believe this is wrong. I would never do it, and I don't believe anybody should do it, and I don't believe we should allow it. Now, of course, the folks who um, are in favor of a woman's choice, might say, but that's not the right way to think about the moral status of the fetus. And we need to make a distinction between fetal life and the life of people after birth or the life of people after fetal fetal viability. That is an important moral distinction. So, as you know, this is one of the most intractable bioethical issues and has been for half a century, (laughs) dating back to before the Roe v. Wade decision, and it continues to be, and it continues to evolve, and who knows what the next step w- will be, whether the Supreme Court will choose to rule on this once again. It's not the only beginning-of-life issue. There are other issues with regard to the use of assisted re- uh, reproductive technologies, and those are tough, can be tough issues. There are other issues about the relationship between maternal life and fetal life when there are potential conflicts between the interests of the fetus and the interests of the mother. And, of course, abortion is one of those. But even if abortion is not part of the picture, there are things that um, might be important for the health of the fetus that women may not be uh, wanting to do. Um, For example, things like a cesarean section delivery um, for a fetus that's in distress a woman may, may may not want to have that uh, that you know invasive surgery so what should we do in those kinds of situations those are pretty pretty complicated ethical questions as well
0: one thing we should do is respect each other's position and agree to gr- disagree like you say in your book i mean we, <laughs> instead of holding the other in contempt seeing them as completely wrong i mean my birth mother was a staunch single voter issue that's all she cared about mm-hmm. and I know a lot of people like that and yeah. I also know a lot of people on the other side so it's mm-hmm. it's it's good that we can hold these positions and 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 still manage to thrive in society so mm-hmm. yeah I want to say thank you so much for coming today mm-hmm. um I really enjoy this conversation I would encourage everyone to go out and buy Dr. Moskop's mm-hmm. book um Ethics in Healthcare an Introduction it's available out there uh, I Googled it and found it. I think it was about 15 bucks. So I encourage you to. A little more than that. A little but more it's, than that. But it's not, it's not expensive. I think it was the PDF version. Oh, okay. 14. PDF. <laughs> yeah. The,
1: the e-book is less expensive. Yes. Mm-hmm. So
0: I would yeah. encourage everyone to, uh, to go out there. And we also have, he mentioned the Exploring Ethics series. Um, you can find out more about that at northwestahec.org. And once again, thank you so much.
1: Thank you. I enjoyed uh,
0: the conversation.